my name is uh, is Ahmed Abdelaziz. I was transferred to to the island Guantanamo Bay on uh, October 27th, 2002. Ahmed Abdelaziz was a detainee for 13 years at Guantanamo Bay, one of the most controversial prisons ever created. The U.S. set up the prison in the wake of 9-11 to hold terrorists, but we now know that many of the people held there were never charged, and prisoners have alleged they suffered torture and human rights abuses. Independent groups, including the U.N. Commission on Human Rights, have denounced their treatment. Ahmed arrived soon after the prison opened, when the prison was using highly controversial interrogation tactics and force-feeding inmates who were on hunger strike. They were like doing the the, the, the force feeding, and it wasn't just force feeding. They put all detainees on punishment for 90 days. You know, you have nothing. They will, they will strip everything you have, everything. You cannot imagine you have no blanket, no sheet, no towel, no toothbrush, nothing, no soap even. And this guy was working there, and he was one of these guys coming to them every day. That guy he's talking about, who was working at Guantanamo Bay, was none other than Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, the guy who is widely expected to announce he's running for president in 2024. DeSantis started working in the prison in 2006. And even though the Florida governor seems to be all over the news these days, very little is known about the time he spent working at Guantanamo. My colleague Michael Cranish has been digging into this, trying to learn everything he can about DeSantis's time there. I saw a campaign ad that he ran when he first ran for governor in 2018, and in that ad it showed him in his navy whites, and the narrator said he, quote, dealt with terrorists at Guantanamo Bay. Ron DeSantis, Iraq War veteran, JAG officer, who dealt with terrorists in Guantanamo Bay. And I thought that was interesting. I think a lot of people probably weren't aware of that. And when I looked for backup on that, I saw a couple of stories, but it really didn't tell me much. And it really made me wonder, well, what exactly did he do at Guantanamo Bay? What happened at the time he was there? And it turned out that he was there during a very extraordinary year, really the most violent year in the history of Guantanamo Bay. Michael spoke with dozens of other people who were at the prison at the same time DeSantis was to try to understand exactly what the governor did there and how this violent year might have shaped his views. We are very, very aware about what we saw, what we remember. Our, our memories are vivid. Most of them, the memories are, are extremely vivid. We can leave them like a reality. Uh, uh, most of our dreams, still uh, when we sleep, it's inside the camp. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Arjun Singh. I'm your guest host today. It's Monday, April 17th. Today, what we know about the time Ron DeSantis spent working at the infamous Guantanamo Bay prison. Michael, can you remind us, like, what exactly is Guantanamo Bay, and why was it a prison in the first place? 
Well, after the attacks of uh, September 11th in 2001, the George W. Bush administration decided that they wanted to bring what they called, quote, enemy combatants, not to the U.S. to face charges. They cited various uh, reasons to put them on a U.S. naval base that's on the uh, island nation of Cuba. So a prison was built there. And they started bringing these individuals off the battlefield in Afghanistan. And there were hundreds that were eventually brought over, nearly 800 uh, in total over the years. And the way it was portrayed at the time, Donald Rumsfeld, then the defense secretary, said these were the worst of the worst. It was too dangerous to bring them over to the U.S. Uh, these men are extremely dangerous, particularly when being moved, such as loading or unloading. And they weren't given the regular legal rights. They weren't given the kind of things that you would expect if you walked into a court when you're arrested. They've um, not been given the rights that you would be accorded if you were a U.S. citizen in a court of law. So there was a lot of controversy, and there were international groups that were saying that these people who were being held there were subjected to torture. Um, they had started forced feeding, which the um, UN Commission on Human Rights said was tantamount to torture, violated various international conventions. We now know most of the people who were brought over, they were never charged, most were released. So to this day, uh, Guantanamo remains open, although most of the cells have been emptied. And it remains a very controversial period in American history that uh, these individuals were brought over. Um, many of them say they were simply picked up because it was a way for somebody on the battlefield to make a few thousand dollars and convince U.S. officials, hey, that person's a terrorist and pay me a bounty. Sure, there are definitely some who were there where there seems to be clear evidence or they've uh, confessed to various things. The mastermind on Line 11 to this day remains at Guantanamo. But for many others, they say uh, they never should have been brought over there. They had nothing to do with what was going on in Afghanistan or played some very minor role and didn't deserve to be picked up and were just brought over because some warlord you know, wanted to make $5,000 in a bounty or, or whatever it was. So it was very controversial at the time that it, it opened, and it's really been even more controversial as time has gone on, and very few of them were actually charged. And a young Ron DeSantis says that he wants to work there. Can you explain that path to me a little bit more, Michael? How does he go from law student to eventual lawyer at Guantanamo? Well, Ron DeSantis, after 9-11, he went to Harvard Law, and he decided rather than join a fancy law firm where he could have made an awful lot of money, to be sure, decided he wanted to become a member of the Judge Advocate General's Corps, which is a Navy Corps of officers who are lawyers. Um, and at 27 years old, he goes down and he joins the... Um, that corps and is sent to Guantanamo. He's based at a naval base in Jacksonville, Florida. And he's sent down there over a period of about a year or more for several weeks at a time, back and forth. And he has said that initially he thought that he would be able to prosecute uh, these individuals at Guantanamo. It didn't work out that way because there were a lot of legal challenge to the military commission process. So he actually didn't get to be a prosecutor. And some people had assumed that he was, and that's just not the case nor did he work as a defense attorney. He ended up working as a legal advisor to that corps down there. And that advice involved essentially how you were treating um, detainees. Uh, he would meet with detainee lawyers. He would meet with detainees. And his job was in part to make sure that their complaints, their concerns were conveyed you know, up the stream. So Michael, what was Guantanamo Bay like when Ron DeSantis showed up in 2006? Well, the conditions had deteriorated, and there were a lot of um, detainees who were on hunger strikes. And this had started. There was a lot of 
concern by human rights groups that the hunger strikes were justified, that conditions were terrible there, and that the detainees not having been charged were being mistreated. So as DeSantis arrived, those hunger strikes were escalating. And he says that he was asked by a commanding officer, you know, how do we deal with this? And DeSantis said in a 2018 interview with a local television station in Florida, the only time I can really see him talking in detail about this, he said, hey, you can actually force feed. So everything at that time was legal in nature one way or another. So the commander wants to know, well, how do I combat this? So one of the jobs of the legal advisor would be like, hey, you actually can force feed. Here's what you can do. Here's kind of the rules of that. You also had a lot of... And detainees say the way it was done was they were strapped to a chair, immovable. Um, They had these uh, hoses inserted up their nose where protein shake mixtures were sent up their nasal cavity into their stomach in a process they described as absolutely brutal. So... DeSantis, by his own account, he said, hey, you can do this. Here's how you can do it. And the federal government always denied that this was torture. They'd never agreed with those critics who said that it was. You know, there were many efforts by detainee lawyers to stop that practice, but it was ongoing. So it was a very, very contentious time as people running the camp were trying to get information that they hoped would prevent another terror attack. And the many detainees there were being... Uh, question in a way that they felt, you know, went way too far and they were held in conditions that they considered uh, inhumane and they were being force-fed. So it was a very explosive uh, situation. And the newspapers, the television was filled with stories about uh, the conditions at Guantanamo, the fairness or unfairness of how people were being held there and its uh, central role in the, the war on terror and whether that was justified and whether the people there really had anything to do with it and whether this system could continue. Well, and so did you get a chance to talk to anybody who had seen or been around DeSantis during this time period? I'm just so curious, given everything you've laid out, like what was life like in Guantanamo back then? Uh, Very interestingly, I spent a lot of time, I probably talked to 40 or 50 people who were down in Guantanamo during that time. I was able to talk to the commanding officer, Patrick McCarthy, Captain McCarthy, talked at length about how he gave a lot of responsibility to Ron DeSantis, really was impressed with his background at Harvard Law, talked to the prison warden, talked to other lawyers who had met with DeSantis, and quite interestingly, he was able to talk to two former detainees. And these two were particularly interesting because they had spoken fluent English even at that time, many more do now. So they were quite aware that if you could talk to a a JAG officer like DeSantis, even though they didn't know DeSantis' name, for security reasons, the JAGs did not have the name tags when they went to visit um, the prison. But they later realized that the person that they remember very well was Ron DeSantis. So I interviewed uh, two of these individuals, and one, Ahmed Abdul Aziz. Um, He remembers thinking, like, if we want to tell the commanders here how bad things are, how bad conditions are, the way to do that was through someone like the person he now recognizes as DeSantis. So he told me that he um, told DeSantis, you've got to tell people we don't know you know, our, our trial, we don't know our charges, and you really need to tell people what's going on here. And he said that DeSantis had assured him that that would happen. He was always smiling like the others. Some of, sometimes they will say, uh, oh, oh, sure, sure, sure. We will we, we'll bring it up to, to the higher-ups. He said that, and other people said that. Sometimes they said, 
uh, fine. That's why we are here. But eventually, this detainee told me that uh, conditions got worse, not better. We were, people were, you know, in, in extremely harsh conditions. You know, unbearable, unbearable. You cannot imagine. You, you are, uh, or they will turn off the AC until you, you almost suffocate of no air, or they will turn AC to... to and then there was a second detainee, Mansur Adafi. Um, and he's really interesting because he's written with a co-author quite uh, a documented uh, memoir of his time at Guantanamo, uh, which he called Don't Forget Us Here, in which he talks at great length about being force-fed. And he describes the process in great detail and how excruciatingly painful it was for him. We're like tied to a force-feeding chair, and they brought like piles of insure. There were like medical teams, a lot of guards, and everyone just really was like screaming, dragging us. So and they start really like feeding us like just thick tube. The guards just the guard even pushed the tube through our noses, bleeding. And according to Adafi, he says that he would sometimes try to reject what he was being given. He was strapped into a chair when he was force-fed up through his nose. And the only way to basically make his objections known was to spit out what he was being given. Oh and he God. said he did that. And he said on one occasion, he spit out and it was DeSantis across from where he was being force-fed. And he says some of that landed on DeSantis. Now, I asked DeSantis specifically through written questions, do you recall this happening? His office did not respond to request for comment. Um, since the story has been published, you know, I've heard nothing back from their office to say that this didn't happen. And Adafi has, you know, very strongly stood, you know, by this story. So there you have two detainees. And I did a lot of other research where you see that the job of someone like DeSantis as a JAG was, in fact, to advise on force feeding, was to see and meet detainees and their lawyers. So a lot of that fits together. That doesn't mean that you can prove that what these two detainees said is what happened. But the timing um, fits. They were certainly there during that time period. Um, and it's their version of events. It's what they say, you know, in these on the records uh, with me for this story. And outside of the force feedings, were there ever other incidents or situations that DeSantis had found himself in that really stood out to you, Michael? Yes, absolutely. The most violent act that's ever occurred in the history of Guantanamo occurred um, after these force feedings were ratcheted up. There were three detainees, and in June 2006, all three uh, were found dead. Uh, one a little bit later in a medical facility, but all three essentially found dead. And the, uh, the prison authorities almost immediately said these were simultaneous suicides, and the three um, were found dead by hanging, that they hanged themselves. And DeSantis, according to his supervising officer, Captain Patrick McCarthy, McCarthy told me, which he had not previously said, and I hadn't seen reported, he said that he eventually called in DeSantis to help with the investigation as to what happened with these three deaths. Mm -hmm. You can only imagine what a huge story this was at the time. This came to the attention of the White House, uh, the Defense Department. There were immense numbers of stories about it. There were uh, various human rights groups who seriously questioned whether these really were suicides. DeSantis himself later said in this local television interview that there were three suicides by hunger strikes, but that's not what the federal government initially eventually concluded. In fact, they concluded they were simultaneously hanging themselves. So DeSantis appears to have um, misstated 
you know, what actually happened. So his job, according to McCarthy, later was to go in and in some way deal with evidence regarding this. We don't know all the details. There's the Naval Criminal Investigative Service that went in. They did an investigation. So, you know, I had a number of questions about this. I went back and interviewed a lot of people who were involved in that investigation. Um, The report, unfortunately, redacts the names of the JAG officers who were involved. So you can't tell whether uh, it says that DeSantis was, but it does say that people from his base were sent down to Guantanamo to collect information. So it all sort of fits with what DeSantis's commanding officer told me about that. Mm-hmm. And then it has to be noted here that according to the prison warden that I interviewed, Michael Bumgardner, he said all three were slated to soon be released. Is that correct? All three were going to be released? not informed them on that yet, but yeah, as, as best as memory serves, all three were slated to go. It really is quite a shocking fact to know that according to government officials, they were very soon slated to be released from Guantanamo. So their families, um, some of them filed suits against the government saying that, you know, these weren't suicides, that they were deaths as a result of torture or interrogation that went too far. There is a guard who was at the camp who wrote a book called Murder at Camp Delta, which alleged that they weren't suicides, they were interrogations that went too far. So I found in my reporting, you know, there are still a lot of questions about how those three died. And so, of course, as a reporter looking into DeSantis's role during this year that he was at Guantanamo, the fact that his commanding officer says he was involved in some of the investigation, I'd love to know a little bit more. But I do think that it's opened the question. So, like, DeSantis isn't someone who's sitting from the outside looking at memos or transcripts. He's inside the prison, and he's got an active role. So what does DeSantis say about this time now? Does he ever talk about being at Guantanamo? I think he's been asked a little bit. DeSantis wrote a book uh, recently that's called The Courage to Be Free, and I was anxiously awaiting that book before the story was finished to see if he would talk in more detail. And he really skimmed over this. He essentially said... He went down there briefly, volunteered for duty down there, and that was it. He didn't go into, you know, very much at all. So for whatever reason, he skimmed over it. It seems like it'd be a major chapter of your life being an officer, you know, off and on over the course of more than a year at Guantanamo. But, you know, he really just mentioned it and passed on in a few sentences in that book. So like I say, if he runs for president, there would be certainly many more questions, and we'll see if he does interviews where he um, uh, says more about this. After the break, what DeSantis thinks about the debate over keeping Guantanamo open and what it would mean for the prison and the remaining inmates if he has the final say as president. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts.
Okay, so DeSantis doesn't necessarily speak about it a lot, but Guantanamo does stay in the news. I mean, during the Obama administration, when he himself is in Congress, there's all these discussions that Guantanamo Bay should be closed or they're going to try and close it. Did he ever at least weigh in on those kinds of conversations? Yes. So DeSantis, after serving on Guantanamo, he then served in Iraq, um, briefly worked for a law firm. And then he was elected to Congress in 2012. He became a big defender of keeping Guantanamo open. There were efforts by members of both parties to close Guantanamo. Um, The number of people there was dwindling. Most people weren't charged. Many were released. Uh, As a result, he uh, chaired a subcommittee hearing in 2016 where he basically said, no, you know, we can't close Guantanamo. I'm paraphrasing here. But uh, he fought very strenuously to keep it open. And he's been continuing to do that. So he has been a lead proponent of keeping it open. In fact, I found that he was interviewed on Fox News um, where the interviewer said, why should you keep open Guantanamo? It costs millions of dollars per prisoner per year to run that place where you could put them much more cheaply at a very secure prison called the Supermax in Colorado. And DeSantis uh, responded, well, there's several reasons you shouldn't do that. And he said the Supermax, he said you have common criminals there. Supermax has common criminals. I know we have prosecuted terrorists who've made it to our shores before, but it's an apples and oranges comparison. That is a military operation that's going on there. It is not a civilian justice system. And part of the reason it costs a lot is because they get three special halal meals a day. They get round-the-clock medical care. Um, They get the Qurans when they want it. So they're treated far better than they would be treated almost anywhere else. And that's costly. I I, I would like to see us trim back on that for sure. I interviewed the the former warden of that Supermax prison, and he said it's not for common criminals. It was built, in fact, for, you know, the most difficult uh, prisoners and that there are, for example, the 1993 World Trade Center bombers there, the Unabombers there. So that's been contested, his statement about that. But nonetheless, you know, he is... Um, as far as we know, is still talking about uh, keeping it open. When he's there in Congress, he's a defender of the prison, but I really am wondering, Michael, did he ever have a change of heart when it came to the issues of force feeding or other issues of abuse that some have even referred to as torture? Did he ever change his stances around the way prisoners were treated? I'm not aware that he changed any position on force feeding. I'm not aware that he is... Uh, believe, like some believe, that there was torture that was there. So uh, he has defended what's gone on there. I have not seen him waver from that. And what about his belief in foreign policy and the use of the military at large? Would you say that this time at Guantanamo and what you reported on and learned seems to carry over in the way he thinks the military should operate at large? Well, that's a that's a different question and a very interesting one. I think if he runs for president, it would be one of the most important that he would face. When he ran for governor, he used his service at Guantanamo as a major selling point, which, by the way, was a very close election in 2018. He was overwhelmingly reelected recently, but that election was very close. You know, this was a very important fact. So he highlighted that military service without going into detail, wasn't really asked about it in detail. But initially when he ran, that was a big part of his whole biography. More recently, you've seen him be critical of, of the role of the U.S. military right now in various ways. He's um, criticized the support for Ukraine. Um, He said that that's a territorial dispute between Russia and Ukraine, although he's walked that back a little bit, but not that much. Um, And he's also um, uh, been critical of some of the actions that the U.S. took as far as 
the invasion of Iraq and our presence there. He served there in Iraq, so he saw things firsthand. He hasn't talked about that in a lot of detail, but you know that also was interesting. So again, this is something that if he runs for president, I think there'd be an awful lot more questions about and that he might want to explain more about his views on the use of uh, military force, as well as uh, the use of alleged torture, the methods of rendition, how we've kept people on crime, all sorts of things that, you know, he has had direct experience with that would certainly become part of uh, the questions about his run for president, if that's what he does. And there have also been a lot of efforts to close Guantanamo Bay down, right? Why has it been so difficult for the prison to be shut down? Well, every time there's been efforts to close it down, there are many people on both sides of the aisle who've said this should be done, that you could transfer them, and there's only a handful that are still left there. There are others who would say, and DeSantis has been in this camp, that you know he doesn't want to be seen as soft on terrorism. And he does believe, apparently, based on his statements uh, when he ran a commercial hearing on this, he doesn't want to have them released to a U.S. court system. He doesn't want to have them released to a um, facility in Colorado, for example, the Supermax prison. So, you know, it's been very hard. Joe Biden has pledged that he would close it, as have some other presidents. Trump had said he would put more people there. He never did that either, but he didn't intend to close it. But you've had others. Obama said he would close it. Biden said he would close it. Even though there's only, a, you know, a couple of three dozen people who are there now still, um, at the prison, it's still very hard to close because um, the question arises, well, what would you do with these people? What, is it possible that someone who is the worst of the worst, you know, would that person basically be able to be freed? Would they be able to, you know, if they appear in a U.S. court, somehow find a way to to be freed and go back and turn against the United States? So there is that concern. But even though Biden was very strong in saying he would close it, it doesn't look like it's going to happen before at least his first term is is over. Michael, what did learning about Ron DeSantis during this very pivotal year, what does it tell you about the Ron DeSantis that we see today, the Florida governor who very well could potentially be the future president of the United States? You know, as a reporter, sometimes you don't know all the answers, but you want to tell the readers, you know, here's what we know, here's what we found. Um, and I, I do believe that's advanced things. And at some point, if he does run for president, it's inevitable that he be asked more questions because it's such a pivotal year in his life. Michael, Michael Bumgartner, the prison warden, said it had to have hardened him. Here's this young man, comes down from Yale and Harvard Law, suddenly he's face-to-face with people that the um, defense secretary has said are the worst of the worst, and he said this, this would have hardened DeSantis. There's no way around it. You don't come out of that experience not being affected. When I talked to uh, DeSantis's commanding officer, uh, Captain McCarthy, he stressed like you shouldn't associate, you know, negative things to uh, DeSantis because I was the, the commanding officer and uh, he was under me and DeSantis was just following orders. Whatever he did, whether you like it or not, that's what he's doing. But to the detainees, you know, they see people like DeSantis as emblematic. I mean, he, he was someone, some of these detainees say they remember, you know, so one of the detainees that we spoke to, Ahmed Abdelaziz, he's very... Uh, concerned that uh, DeSantis might be elected president, what that means for the detainees who are still there. And so, you know, he sees DeSantis through his memory of having seen him all those years ago in 2006. If he, if he take over, he, it's going to be a catastrophe for Guantanamo for the rest of the detainees. You know, so there is no doubt about that. And I, I should note here that I talked to many detainee lawyers for this story some of whom vividly recall meeting with DeSantis 
at that time in 2006. And one of them, J. Wells Dixon, he said, if anyone you know, knows, according to Dixon, you know, how bad things were, how wrong things were at Guantanamo, it should have been someone like DeSantis who was involved with providing legal advice as to what was going on at Guantanamo at that time. Now, DeSantis has gone on to be a big defender of what's gone on there, but it just gives you this insight into the fact that there are, there are people who were there at the time, remember meeting with DeSantis, and you know, feel like you know, he should have learned other lessons from what he experienced there than what he has said he took away. Well, Michael, I'm really glad that you were able to report this story, and I'm looking forward to what you report on next as the campaigns really kick up. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Arjun. Thanks for having me. Michael Cranish is a national political investigative reporter for The Post. This episode was produced by Sabby Robinson and mixed by Sean Carter. It was edited by Maggie Penman. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you value this type of reporting, please subscribe to The Washington Post. It's a great way to support the work we do. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Arjun Singh. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.